Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to Trailblazers. My guest today, he heard one of my Trailblazer podcasts and said, I'm one of them. So I invited him on. Billy McGrath has some big credits to his name. A firebrand in the burgeoning music scene of the 1970s, a comedy impresario before comedy even happened in this country, a band manager, a producer, a filmmaker, a documentary maker in Dublin and London and beyond, RTE, Channel 4 and the rest. He once even shared a house with Bob Geldof and was the man who kind of kept you two together, kind of. And now he's got a show, he's going to talk about it um, on top of everything else called Gusto. It's a tale of the third act of life. Now, Billy, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Now, Billy, before we go anywhere, I cannot let you away with this uh, U2 connection. Uh, You were mentioned in Bono's book, weren't you? I was. I was quite surprised. Uh, He mentioned the fact that the band greatly admired a band I used to manage called The Atrix. And they were having problems with Paul McGuinness and the suggestion was that they approached me to manage them, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a surprise, a surprise when I read it. But uh, I do remember meeting uh, Larry and Bono in Captain America's because Murray's records below on the Grafton Arcade was a great, great kind of magnet for mm-hmm. the bands. And uh, we got on well. We talked about gigs. I used to manage before that a band called Stagalee, who were from Tralee, and Stagalee could play anywhere in Ireland. So when I started to manage the Atrix, I had a really good black book of gigs, colleges, mm. venues, right? And they were really interested to try, try to play outside to, to Dublin. But Paul was not interested. Paul McGuinness was not interested in Dublin. He was interested in London, the world, a record deal, right? Okay. So uh, a couple of weeks later. Adam Clayton and Bono arrived out where I lived in Marion Avenue, where I had an office and where I lived as well. And they asked me to book them out, etc. And I just thought, you can't do both. You can't manage a band and have somebody else but booking the band. So I said, like I knew, knew Paul and I respected him. And I just thought he was a much, much better person to, to look at the strategy of bringing you two forward than getting involved with, with, with me, who kind of booked him into Wexford and Galway. But it wasn't what I thought. So I said to them, stick with Paul. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. But I gave them an idea. I gave them an idea. I said, you need to think about something a little bit outside the norm, right? So do do something different. And I just threw a stupid idea out. So why don't you play Christmas gigs in McGonagall's in June? And they went away. And the next thing I see, posters in the street, jingle balls, you too. Christmas shows in McGonagall's in June, you know. So, so irony before their irony happened thirty years yeah, before. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I always got on well, and that that meeting went well, and uh, I was very lucky that they would 
back me for the TV projects or the, doc- the documentaries. You, know. you did do Wide Awake in Dublin in 1985, didn't you, when you were working with uh, or, RTE, RTE yeah, which yeah, I remember. Yeah. Uh, that was a really, really good, really caught them very well, Billy, I must say. You produced that show. And uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, it was no harm having the connection. So I remember going to the office in Wimble Lane and just explaining to them that what I wanted to do was... Uh, you know, I won't go back in time, but I was a great fan of a f- filmmaker in America called D.A. P- P- Pennebecker. And D.A. P- Pennebecker uh, d- directed some wonderful behind-the-scenes films. His famous one was Don't Look Back with Bob Dylan. But he also did a d- documentary with Robert K- 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 Kennedy. And, and his whole thing was let the camera follow the action. Mm. No presenter, no host, no vo- no kind of a VO, right? So I just said to them, I'd love to... They were due to come, come back and play Crow Park. And I said, I'd love to follow you in that week, kind of rehearsing, uh, meetings, PR, black kind of thing. So they said yes, and the promoters said yes. So I spent a week in Crow Park and, and beyond following them. And what, what the audience saw on RT was what really happened. Ha- it could have happened. So, yeah. But yeah, it worked. It worked because obviously you had the end. You had the end point, which was a fantastic show. Yeah. Fantastic live show. 80,000 80, people, you know. In Croke Park, Park. Where Bono actually incredibly was, and it was very brave of him, I must say, uh, because he was he was waving a white flag at Croke Park and talking mm-hmm. about peace at Croke Park, the symbolism obviously was not lost on him. <laughs> and uh, and I think he even might have had um, uh, an Irish flag that was kind of removed in favour of mm-hmm. a white flag. So I have to say, fair play to you, Bono. I am, I, I it was an incredible op- gig. You yeah. caught it very, yeah. very well, by the way. That show is a great yeah. show. I remember the opening line, the Jacks are back. That's right. And what an old Ireland we have for you tonight. I was That's there. It. June 29, 1985. Best gig I was ever at. Uh, and the pre- previous best gig I was ever at was, the, was another U2 gig, actually, strangely. Anyway, so, yeah, I remember that ambience of that show that you made, Wide Awake in Dublin, because it, it, it didn't have, hi, I'm here, I'm the presenter, and I'm the uh, kind of conduit here. Yeah. It was just straight into, and you really caught it, you really caught, there was a, it was quite a, um, somber's not the right word, but there was a, there was a kind of, there was a huge sense that this band had kind of gone to America now and really made it. They played Madison Square Garden. That was a massive, massive thing. Uh, and there was a real sense of homecoming. The show was a homecoming show. And yeah, you caught yeah, that yeah. brilliantly. Anyway, um, we will get, get back to a little bit of, about that later on. You are now in the, um, in the third act of the life. The third act of life, yeah. yes. Uh, yes. Are you a septuagenarian? You septuagenarian, are. yeah. I turned 70. And we're, we're, now in, uh, we're now in 2023, and I turned 70 August the 18th, uh, 2022. Okay. Yeah. And you have a play. It's called Gust. It's a play. It's an, it's a, Evening with... Uh, yeah, I, I, I spent most of 2019 uh, producing and directing a documentary film with the Boontown Rats, and I just thought at the end of this year, I had wound up really sideline productions that I ran and managed for about kind of, kind of 20 years. And we were very successful and everything else. And I was just kind of reaching a stage where I was 68, 69. And I just thought, I wouldn't mind just winding down. So I planned it 
six months before the end of the Boomtown Rats film that I would I would go and write. I would go back and re- revisit the whole area of, of like a stand up, which I did do in the late 70s and early 80s when there was no scene here whatsoever, no clubs. You know, it used to be late night in the project. Yeah. Uh, and that was really it. There was no. You're talking about the you know, mid to late 70s. Yeah. So I said when to Jim myself, Sheridan and Peter were, run, his brother Peter Sheridan, were yeah. running. The late the yeah, uh, art project art center at that time. John Stevenson and people, mm. people like that. So uh, I just said after twenty five or thirty years of experience with writing, directing, producing, and working with an awful lot of people. Plus, in that time, I'd I'd I, for instance, two thousand and fifteen to two thousand and nineteen, I produced about a hundred shows for RT Radio One called Comedy Showhouse. So I was working with loads of comedy people. I did a pilot with the Rubber Bandits, which Channel 4. I developed a, a pilot script with uh, Foil Arms and Hog for the, the BBC. So I was always still involved. I, I worked with Sean Hughes a lot. And I, you know, I, I was always involved in co- comedy in some shape or form. So I thought, why don't I take a big plunge hmm. and write and perform my own show, really looking back at my life, but mm-hmm. also trying to inject an element of a deeper l- l- level of thought that if you have a very good sense of humour and you can laugh at pain and s- suffering <laughs> and, 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 and stuff that, that affects you, right? Because pain that, is funny. <laughs> no, no, because, you know... Of course it is. Pain like, is funny. It, it's like, it's mental health... Mm. For me, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to play kind of football. Uh, like I'm not going to play soccer for Ireland. I'm not going to climb the Himalayas. I'm, I'm reaching a point on my third act where I'm retired. I just thought the biggest thing that you have to look after is your mind. Mm. And I thought there's nothing better to do than to go and write an original show and w- worry about it and g- go through that internal challenge of bringing it to a stage and having strangers either saying it's good or bad or maybe reviews or otherwise but I wanted to go in that adventure yeah. be, be because I had to test myself because otherwise I'm, I'm I, like I've wordled done by the time I've heated up the porridge you know what I mean I have the online Irish Times come across where done before I have the, the tea to tea done mm. right and it's kind of half nine I play around the golf now and again uh so your days, your day could be done by half nine. I know, but, but I mean, you know, oh, in I, the I, morning. I, I, sorry, I, I did a uh, sorry. Just go back. I did an MA in screenwriting last year okay. in Dunleary in the National Film School. So um, you're very active. So uh, I'm, I'm writing. I've, I've got a slate of screenplays of a sitcom in development. I've got uh, a t- TV drama under option. You know, but yet those take a long time to come to fruition. Mm. Where I learned. When I had a chance to get involved in film, uh, probably about twenty years ago, I discovered I much prefer to come up with an idea for TV, and it'd be on air in three months. Where in fact, if you work in film, you could be in development hell, and things could get shelved or things could get dropped, and that's a year mm. after, and 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 you still haven't been paid. Mm. So I just much prefer to be busy to have different balls in the air, and ultimately, that. That, that drives me, you're right. Development hell of, 
of people <laughs> shelving projects. <laughs> and, uh, what if conversations? What if yeah, yeah. the idea that you have is changed <laughs> to my idea and you do it this way? Right. Um, so the, the reason, by the way, for the just to let all you viewers uh, know is that uh, part of the reason I know Billy well is because uh, he was you were head of RT Entertainment when I was there uh, when I was working with that pretty much particularly in the 2000s so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on I want to go back to the first act uh, shall we say where did all of this interest in uh, the entertainment industry and so on where did it come from it didn't come from home you know, my dad was a civil servant and my mum was a housewife and it didn't come from home. I have six siblings. Where was home? Home was uh, home was on the old Swords Road. Well, sorry, it's still the, it's still the, the Swords Road, but mm. then it was the main road to the airport mm, yeah. and the main road to Belfast. Uh, I grew up opposite Santry Stadium. There was a row of, of detached houses uh, opposite Santry Stadium and we grew up in the second last one. Uh, called Glenbrook, which was a small town in Cork, because my dad was from Cork, and he called it Glenbrook. And you went to Cloisterwyra? Uh, I went to Cloisterwyra. Originally, I went to St. Pat's in Drumcondra. Mm. And uh, somehow, I have two older brothers, and somehow my mum and dad decided that if I was going into Cloisterwyra, which was an all-Irish Irish. Irish mm. school, it was the only all-Irish school in Dublin at the time, it'd be better if I left primary school after fourth class. Okay. So I went into Cloisterwyra in fifth class, wrong a week. So by the time I went into secondary school, I'd be fluent in Irish. And were you? Fluent in Irish, yeah. But I suffered from a very bad stammer and a very mm. bad stutter mm. when I was young. I still can't get into it. I used to go, I used to, I remember going to the old Harker Street Children's Hospital and going to speech to therapy there when I was eight or nine. And so, so, to, go, so to go from fourth class amongst a group of people who knew me and accepted me and knew, knew I stuttered and everything else, to go into a completely different class. I knew nobody. And now speaking a different language right, was a huge thing. I, I remember I didn't like that fifth class or sixth, sixth class at all. And as a matter of interest, um, did you... Well, this might sound like a stupid question, but there's a reason for asking it. When you were speaking Irish... Did you stutter? Oh, I did. no, of course. Of course I you did. did. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. I and used the, to dread yeah. being asked to read. You know when you, you used to go around the, you used to go around the class mm. and they used to say, okay, read the next paragraph and I'd be next. I'd be shaking. I'd, mm. I'd be... Mm. Honestly, they go out for lunch and come back and I'm still there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or you'd be... Um, yeah. So the, dare I say to use this term, the lived experience of you as a youngster in Ireland at that time uh, was, was tricky, but you did, you did get help, yeah, you were saying, in, yeah, well, in I, the I Harvard did, Street Children's Hospital. So not Street. Actually, the, the biggest help I got, and it was really weird, there was a lovely Christian brother. There was a few odd Christian brothers, but one was Br- Brother Wade, and I'm sure he's passed, but my memory of him is, is just fantastic. He was a great handball. See, the, the one thing that saved me, I think, I was really good at sport. I played every sport. I played under 13 hurling and under 15 hurling, under 13 Gaelic football. I played handball. Mm. I was a champion Irish dancer. You know, I, I danced for the school. Uh, I did sloga. So what saved me was the fact that I could... Anybody who made f- f- kind of fun of me having a stutter, I'd leave them on their arse, you know, 
win a ball or, or out, you know. Okay, so you could hold so your own and you were respected in, the, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, generally, so, if you played sport in those schools, you were okay. So, Brother Wade, uh, I played handball up to a certain level. But Brother Wade said, said to me one day, and I, can't, I don't even know what he said in English or Irish, he said, have you anywhere you could go on your own and just breathe and relax and stuff like that? And I, yeah, I lived opposite Santry Woods, so across the road from us was a playground of forest and swamps, mm. you know, huge. Now it's, now it's where the Santry Sports Clinic is and the yeah. Clarion Hotel, and it's a huge amount of apartment, mm. apartments. I said, yeah, yeah, we went to the, the woods. Yeah, and I said, well, why don't you find a tree and talk to the tree? And believe it or not, I know it sounds really strange, but I went in there one day and I looked around me and there was nobody around. I was on my own. And I started talking to the tree. I actually talked to the tree. I took a deep breath. And then I began to develop accents. And then to develop, the tree became a kind of a sounding board to me. I used to, <laughs> uh, right. like, like, the, like the goons, I had a voice for the tree, right? Mm. And I'd have this conversation with myself and some would say it's the first sign of madness like if anybody saw me talking to the tree but after that I began to do debates at school and pretend the audience was a tree and I do (laughs) drama like in first year in UCD I won the Kevin Barry Memorial Medal for impromptu debate at the C&E Society like I just went from there to there and of course then I got involved in drama and then stand-up was always a thing where you develop a character. Always I used to just talk to myself in the mirror, or talk to myself in the dressing room, and then just take a deep breath and say, it's showtime. You know, so... Uh, but it, but it, did, it did kind of... Because I was a very quiet guy, because of that when I was young, I'm very happy in my own skin. Moya, my wife, just says, you're in your own all day? I said, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine in my own all day. I, I'm, I'm fine in my own head, and I find... The creative work that goes on is a lot of it's because I spent so much time as a daydreamer, and you know I used to, uh, I used to, we used to have an old kind of radiogram. I'm sure a lot of people kind of listening remember like the radiograms mm. that had a, a record player that you flipped up, and then you had kind of MW MW and doors would open for you have speakers. What I remember as a kid sitting in in the living room or the, the back room listening to BBC radio c- 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 comedy, like The Goons, a show called The Clitero Kid. Uh, there was a Dad's Army t- t- type show, but I loved that whole world. And it probably fueled me as regards getting involved as a kind of writer and being able to create stuff. And you were in UCD, and it was when you were in UCD that, that you sort of extended your interest in all of these things, in, in drama and yeah, yeah, yeah. comedy and so on. Uh, and you be, didn't you become head of ants in UCD? Head of ants, yeah. When I went to UCD, it was like a big concrete jungle. I was really, really d- disappointed because I grew up with the uh, Monty Python and K- K- Cambridge and stuff like that, and you know, footlights. I went to UCD thinking it was going to be just a, a huge amount of anarchy, but it was really conservative. So it took, it took a while. I set up a review group with Paddy Murray, the late great Paddy Murray and Brendan Martin called, called the Milligan Machine. And we got to perform. And then I got involved in putting on ends and concerts. And, and at that time, there was only one full-time rep, one full-time student officer, and that was the president. Uh, after I did a BA, a, quite a, 
a mediocre BA. I did a H-dip. And during my H-dip years, training as a teacher, the student union decided to have another two full-time officers. One, one was education, which went to Joe Little, and the other was an entertainment officer. And that started off me, probably. UCD at the time was the probably the biggest live venue in, du- du- uh, mm. live venue in Dublin at the time. Oh, I remember there was lo- loads of big gigs uh, UC in Re- UCD, D- yeah. Uh, the UCD restaurant that had about 1,500 people there but also we kind of satellites in kind of Glasnevin the School of Architecture in Marion there was Earlsford Terrace so I began to put folk acts in Mm. to to all over so I began to get experience plus I worked with a really good guy who came in in first year a guy called Dave Kavanagh and Dave became like a legend sadly he passed away far too early but he he went on to manage uh, Planet mm. and set up a label and a heartbeat label and he had huge success with the three not the three to ten, the tenors the uh, he had, with uh, the Celtic women the Celtic women and Celtic tenors but, but but he was younger than me and he just wanted to be an agent he wanted to book acts so mm. I got on I got on really well with uh, Dave we actually shared a house well I was going to say that your time uh, in UCDN's uh, kind of interested a certain Bob Geldof. Bob Geldof, yeah. yeah. It's it's mad. When I look back at the world, I just happened to be in a a really good phase of Mm. life. Like, Ireland was opening up in all the different areas. The amount of marches we were on for housing, for contraception, for divorce. It was a great time to be a student because there was always Mm. something going on. There was a real fight there, a battle for independence of thought, mainly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we won. I remember, uh, and I won't go off on this, but I remember we used to complain. We used to go in to play pool in Ranala. There were 7,000 students out in Belfield. There wasn't even a pool table. So I said, why don't we? So I went to the Ranala crowd and they said, oh, here's a number. So I phoned the guys who delivered the pool table. So at night time, a gang of us took in two pool tables down the stairs and we put them into a room in the basement of uh, the LGs in, in, in UCD and the authorities went mad. But by the end of the week, we had a pool space. I, I think it was called uh, something. They put in two, two more pool tables and they became things. So that's what we used to do. We used to get drenched in the rain waiting for a bus in Belfield. There was no bush shelter. Mm. We, we'd be all standing under the... At, at the restaurant, 50, 60 people standing in the rain waiting for a bus to come, and then the bus would come, we'd all run. So one night, we built a bus shelter. Unfortunately, it blew away and nearly took, they took the head off. So it's a little But the week, a week later, we had a brand new bus shelter. The CAE paid for a bus shelter. So I was always one to think, be active, make things happen. So when I came to the Ents, uh, we we, what happened was that nobody could uh, could could have planned for it. The Miami massacre happened. I started in June, and the Miami show band were wiped out in July. So every visiting band from the UK, cancelled. We had nothing. Mm. So Dave and myself said we have to go and look at bands that we thought were going to be support bands. We have to go and look 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 look, look, look for local bands. And that's how we saw the Boomtown Rats in the Cliff Castle Hotel in Dalkey. 
and we booked them for we booked them for Rat Rag Week. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. Welcome back. So, Billy, Bob Geldof. Tell me about <laughs> Bob Geldof. Uh... I worked in a pea factory in Spalding for many years, and I met a guy called Jerry Cott, who I didn't know before. He was a, a, a student of architecture. So when I saw the Boomtown Rats at the Cliff Castle Hotel in Dorky, my eye was caught on this guy on the left. And I said, I know that face. His air slicked back. And after the show, I went up, Jerry, went, oh, Billy, God's sake. And then I was introduced to Bob. And when Bob heard that uh, I was the head of Ensign in UCD. It was like, you know, he uh, was, was on you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was it was uh, at that time too. The house I was sharing with Dave and a few few others, like we had to leave. And a couple of weeks later, Bob came into the office in UCD because he knew I was interested in booking them, and he said to me, "Well, I have a room free in my house in Sea Point Avenue." And I went down to see it, and I said, "Yeah, I, I'll take, 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 take it." And so, so uh, I, I shared a house with Bob, but that was later. And tell me, what was the young Bob Geldof like? Uh, Bob was was uh, busy, active. He wasn't one for socialising. That, that's one thing. He liked to stay at home. He watched TV. Uh, he he wasn't one for smoking dope, and he wasn't one for going going to pubs. Uh, actually, both of us were living off the dole when, when I moved in with him, so we, we couldn't really afford to do, to do a lot. But, but what he had and what attracted me to go and live with him is he had an idea of organising a tour of local rock bands around Ireland. L- like me, he was conscious that that uh, Irish bands had very little opportunity to, to, to play outside the, the Dublin, right? So... He came up with this idea, which was really a, a follow-on from a Bob, a Bob Dylan, the Rolling to Thunder review. So he said, why don't we do something like the Falling Asunder review? So I said, yeah. So we got a few Bob together. I went into, into Eason's at the time, would have every regional newspaper. And I came back with about 20 new, newspapers. And you look in the entertainment section and you find out what pub might have a, an interesting like the Emmet Spiceland or Mushroom or Christy Moore, you know what I mean? So I did a whole list. This is before the internet and everything else. There was one black phone there. So it was all about phoning up people. And sometimes the number would be another black phone in a pub. And you'll have to ring, mm. ring. But he'd be back and say, be in at seven. And you'll go, okay, I'm ringing at seven. So to make a long story short, we put together 17 dates around Ireland. Uh, we, we all went into a bus. There was the Boomtown Rats. There was a, a great funk band led by the Deke O'Brien called Night Bus. And there was another band, and we were kind of, kind of conscious of probably the biggest band in Ireland probably was Status Quo. There was a lot of denim and hair then. So there was a great band from the north side called Cheap Thrills. That's right. That played a lot of 
US, the Doobie Brothers uh, me, me music. So we thought that would suit the mix. It was like a little circus, you know. Mm. So you had a, a funk soul band uh, and then you had the, the rock and roll band, like the, the Dr. Feelgood, and then you had the mm. L.A. West Coast rock band. So it was like a, a mix for everyone. So we went around the country. It did great business in... Limerick and Galway and Tralee and Wexford did okay business at times when there was more people on stage than, than in the crowd. I remember Clomel, uh, and it turned out that the original venue pulled out because of local ballroom pressure and stuff like that. So it was a little bit of... But we had a, D- a DJ on board, uh, Faye to Taylor, who, who, who is now probably on, on tour with Beyonce. But, but it was a great learning curve, uh, and we finished in uh, finished in the national stadium. Uh, everybody got, got a few bob at the end, mm-hmm. and the Boomtown Rats went off to London, then, London, yeah. and signed a record deal. And I I was at a, a loose end and a little bit, so I looked at my little book. I kept a little diary of the tour, and I discovered that four hundred and thirty nine people paid into Chuck Furbo in Spittle to see the following us under Rock Review in Galway. And 342 people paid in the, into the Glentworth Hotel. And they've nowhere to go now. That was it. That was the only rock gig that they had. So I went back and called up the Glentworth Hotel. It turned out that the, the manager of the Glentworth Hotel went to Black Rock with Bob. So I was able to call Michael Fagan, I think his name was. I said, Michael, is there any chance you could give me a Sunday night or a Friday night? He said, I'll give you a Sunday night. So I opened up the Falling Asunder rock gig in Limerick. And then a few months later, I opened up the Falling Asunder rock gig in Galway on a Thursday night. And that begat a, a rock tour. At the time, Elvira Butler in Cork was opening up the Arcadia. Dennis Desmond, a promoter who at that time worked in Hull, was moving back home. And his partner in crime, Eamon McCann, the MC of MCD, he was running gigs in uh, Queens. And Trinity, not UCD, but Trinity was the happening place. Uh, Ian Wilson, Rossford Simons, Paul to Tipping, they were running great gigs. So a band now, Ireland or British, could come in on a Tuesday and they could play, play, play a circuit. Mm. And, you know, that's... But I got tired of that because you're on the road all the time. So a band I saw in the Glenford Hotel, the first band I booked was a band from Trinity called Stagalee. And we had to turn people away. And I ended up managing them for about two two years. What were they? A trad kind of no, fusion? Well, rock they, band? they were they were right they were right up my street. I remember going over to uh, Cardiff with Bob to see uh, a tour by the Who, and a band that I really liked that was played an awful lot when I shared the student house was a band from America called Little Feet. Mm-hmm. And Little Feet were third on the bill at that. And I, I, I didn't tell Bob, but I really wanted to see Little Feet. They were brilliant. And Stagalee were of that ilk. They do did one, one, one or two Little Feet songs, but it was more uh, JJ Kale, okay. soft. But Earl Walsh was a fantastic singer and a fantastic songwriter. And when they moved to Dublin, they had like some of the best musicians in Ireland. You know, sadly, Greg Boland, fantastic guitarist. He, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. The Dave McHale and saxophone keyboards, he mm. passed away in Germany 10 years ago. Dave played with the Boomtown Rats for a long, long while. Mm. And, but we had... Fantastic and how did they do? 
Stag a league could play anywhere. So. Like I remember the biggest fee I got was a wedding in Maynooth. Uh, uh, like a uh, like an A-list five-star wedding, cash in the hand. And I said, they played college gigs, they played uh, lunchtime gigs, they played ballrooms. Staggerly were a great dance band. Okay. And was there ever a, ch- a sense that you'd get them a record deal and get they, huge? They did, but it's, at that stage, I was also looking at the c- c- comedy side and I, was, I wanted to o- o- open up a c- comedy club. And I got sidetracked into a basement at the Harcourt Hotel that had comedy beforehand, but the acts were all the theatre acts. They were all kind of variety acts. There was no stand-up scene at all. Mm. So, I, so I started the c- comedy store and, and, you know, believe it or not, we released an album uh, funded by the Dennis Desmond. And, and, and we did a tour and everything else. And uh, like everything, uh, I got sidetracked into... I was a very good person with media. And MCD asked me to look after their media and then Aiken Promotions as well. So I had a very good operation then every day, wait, wait, waking up. I, I was doing PR for Rody Gallagher, Christy Moore, all the acts that came in, like The Clash, The Eurythmics. I did the Phoenix Park Festival with U2 and whatever, you, you know, and I was doing PR for Stockton's Wing, Maura O'Connell. Uh, I I did a lot of work with one of my favourite people, uh, a guy called Morris Cassidy. Uh, like, like I know him. I, I did some work with him. Yeah. A gentleman, you know, and he 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 got me into work with uh, acts that came in, like the Flying Caramazza Brothers, uh, Stefan Grappelli, people like that. So I was so I had a for two two or three years. I had a very active PR network, which was doing local and national so at the time i used to go in and book acts and go into rte a lot because i'd have them on the saturday morning show i remember having uh having the edge on a show i went in with rory gallagher and the defining moment was i was in with rory gallagher and johnny cook i think was named the floor manager because i used to kind of stand in the studio and he said if you want to go upstairs to the box i said the box what's the box upstairs control room he said look Come on, go up there. So I went into the, the box and it was like the front of a, a Boeing jet. All these screens, mm. all this activity, director, the PA, the lighting, the sound, all this talking. There's a show on down below. The people at home are listening. But upstairs is kind of, you know, what's going on there? What's going on? Have you got is that tape ready? And I said, oh, this is brilliant. And that set the seeds for me to look at when Orti advertised for trainee producer directors, uh, I said, I'd like that, please. You seem to have fallen into a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff seemed to have come at the right time for you. Well, yeah, because or- I think RT never had that course again. It was six months. They brought in 15 new people and they gave them a six months course. They never did it again, you know. So RTE in the mid-1980s, uh, you're a trainee director, producer, uh, it must have been quite an exciting time if they were taking in all those people. What was it like? It was, it was, it was, it was fantastic. Like, uh, I, I, I trained with a, a, a younger guy than me, a, a guy from Wexford called Declan Lowney, who went on to Do direct Father Football Ted. Ted. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he was younger than me, but he used to go to the c- c- comedy shows, and we got on really well together, and we pitched in a show called The TV Gaga, which was an alternative Late Late Show. It was live on a Thursday night, live on a Thursday night from from t- 10 o'clock to ha- half 11. And we, we never thought that, that would happen. But it was really, 
it was energized and it was it was fueled by a growing amount of creative shows and everything else but a couple of years later i got the opportunity to direct a film with the pogues mm. and i couldn't do it really under rt so i kind of resigned and i went over in march the pogues had just that huge hit with the fairy tale in new york and they were doing a week of shows in march in london and i knew frank the, the, the manager and like uh, so so i went over and they did they did that but in the meantime i also got offered a job to direct uh the, the features for a new ch channel for rock series called wired which was quite and cutting edge i, I remember I, it well, I jumped yeah. at that so i spent a week in march with the post and I finished on Saturday, and on Monday I started with Wired. And what was the difference uh, in in London working in television than Dublin? Was it more cutting edge? Presumably there was cutting edge. Uh, Malcolm Gary, the guy who came up with the idea for Wired, was also ex the uh, the tube, the the, the, the tube, right. right? And I went over to be interviewed for a job to be a director. I, I never told I never told anybody this. But I went over, I applied to, to be a director of the Tube and I got the job, but I, but I wasn't a member of the union. So I couldn't take up the job. So when Malcolm moved down to London and got the Channel 4 gig, he remembered me and he introduced me himself. And he went, Billy, Malcolm, what are you doing here? I'm doing a YouTube gog. And Paul McGinnis put in a really good word for me. And Malcolm, uh, Malcolm asked me, which I was really, it's only now I look back and think, in Britain, there wasn't one features director that he thought could do it. But he picked this young guy from Dublin and went, do you want to move over? The show was also shown in Canada and was also shown in America. And and it had a huge, huge budget, you know. So I, I travelled all over the place. So you got to see the world. I got to see the world. A lot a of good bands as well. I spent a lovely week in Japan with uh, Crowded House. Uh, who, who, they like? who were who were oh, I, I, like, I really liked the band beforehand, but they performed there and we spent a bit of time with. But at, at the time, it, it was kind of a show where you don't just go, go, go over for a week to Japan to do Crowded Hearts. We did a, a feature on women and music and we did a feature with, the, with a band called the, called, the, called the Christians, who were from Liverpool, I think. That's right, yeah. They who, who, who were over there hits, performing. Yeah. And we did another couple of interviews as well. So, so you go back like that and you have a package with, with Crowded House. You package a Christian, so you have maybe four different four different features. Mm. But uh, like we did the we did the opening night of the Michael Jackson European tour. It was uh, like the Gray Norton show now, where if you wanted to sell an act, you don't do every every in interview you're asked for. If you're an actor and you want to sell, sell a show, or a comedian you want to sell a tour, you just go on the Gray Norton show because the Gray Norton show is shown in something like. 84 countries mm. in five days, right? So you've got the world. So the thing about Wired was because we were on in Canada and in America, we were doing interviews with John Johnny Cash, David Byrne, David Bowie. You know what I mean? Because they all knew that Wired was going to be shown all over the place. So oh, it was it was uh, it was an, it was a it was an education mm. in, in working on a project that you knew was local in that you were living in London and editing in London, but it was shown all over. So I took that message in my head and said, if I ever get involved in a production company, I have to be producing stuff for the world because ultimately, you know, it's, it's, 
the best way. So, Billy, you have interfaced with some of the most iconic people in the history of music. Including Gary Cook. Yeah, not just me. Yeah, you know, worldwide. Any, uh, any notable moments with any of these uh, superstars? Know, ah, no. I mean, look, I was always a huge Talking Heads fan. And I remember David Byrne was over in London doing a dance show or something, and and we were interviewing him, and I knew the Pogues. I, I, I knew that James Fernley, the accordion player, was flown over by him to play on an album. So I was dying to ask him, and, but I, I couldn't. So at the end of the interview, I just went over to him and said, look, David, look, my name is Bill McGrath, I'm from Dublin, we're just in a Pogues thing, the Pogues, oh yeah. But you know, the, the, the guy is such an icon, such a quiet guy. And he talked about it, he asked me about Dublin, he asked me about, you know, things about myself. And I said, look, we've, I'm just finishing a documentary. I'd love you to co- comment on your experience with the Post. And he gave me a wonderful quote. He told the, the PR guy, he said, I'd say this on camera, uh, my friend Billy from Dublin can have this quote free of charge for his Pogues documentary. Uh, my name is David Byrne and walked away. Right. And I just thought, what was the quote? Do you remember? The quote of how James Fernley came in like a whirlwind with the accordion, and he, and then, then we cut to James, uh, and, and he he says, "I was doing beep 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 beep," and David said, "Yeah, I want more of that. I want more of that. That, that kind of a thing." But anyway, and the, the second one I remember is because of the Pogues documentary, Joe Strummer played played every night, and I got on well with Joe, so when Wired happened we sat down on our first week and somebody said we'd love to do a feature on joe strummer and and so oh no he's he can't get in touch from he's you know he he never gives out his phone phone number he won't talk he won't talk and i just put my hand up and said i have a number and they all looked back at this guy from the dublin and went huh so i met joe he invited me down to play pool in this you know rasta type pub in nodding hill and i smoked and i drank i played pool with this did you get that from UCD, people. the pool table? The pool table, yeah. <laughs> and I was a good, good pool table. You know, Did you do them? I was a good pool, pool player. Uh, we won the doubles. Which, which, which was a <laughs> we won the doubles with Joe Strummer. Brilliant. And, and, then, and then the following week, he turned up and we did a lovely interview uh, about the legacy of The, of the Clash. And uh, Were you a Clash fan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was doing PR for MCD when they played the the SFX. Oh, that was something else. Oh, I saw them even before that in the, the Trinity. In Trinity. In the, the Trinity, the yeah. famous one. I was standing on a heater along with three, the three others and we thought that the heater was... This is one of those house. iconic gigs from that era in Dublin. What was yeah. it like? The Clash, again. It was that moment or that gig? No, a noise. It was just... Uh, it, it was just... Uh, the place just jumped. The floor just jumped from from the opening. It, it was non. Yeah. I mean, again, it was just in retrospect, and there was no trouble. There was no violence. I, I, I remember the guys from Ems were kind of worried that, you know, it would just. Be Where a, was it in Trinity? Uh, the exam hall. The exam hall. Okay. Yeah, the exam hall was up. No, it was in the main hall. It wasn't upstairs. It was. It was in the main hall, but it was. Uh, it was exciting, you know. It was it was good, but you know, my my taste in music has always been about loving performers and songwriters who who take a genre forward. You know what I mean? So 
I'm, I'm not kind of stick stick in the mood, you know. I, yeah. I appreciate a lot of music. Which they did. They had a lot of reggae in there. Yeah. Uh, rhythmically, yeah, yeah, a lot of reggae yeah, yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. And all of this fantastic tapestry of, of experience and memory and all the, the kind of the many different aspects of it that you've worked in. Yeah. Uh, you know, music, comedy, producing, directing, et cetera, et cetera. Publicity, PR, <laughs> working with me, Gary Cook. Uh, so this is all going to be in your in your show, I presume. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to, to challenge myself. As I say, I'm 70 years old. I don't feel 70. I'm a father of five. Uh, I have three to teenagers in the house. Uh, uh, and... It's not that I don't want to slow down. I just wanted to challenge myself. I have this word in my head for years called gusto. It's like I love that word. It's like you put your fist up and you go energy, gusto. And I wanted to give, I wanted to give myself a challenge. So the show is, is a semi-memoir. The stand-up is under the jokes, but I also show slides of my family and my mum and black and whites of my grandparents. And, and I slowly go through life but it's intercut with stand-up and stories. Mm. And I did it in Listole as a work in progress, and I was just amazed at the reaction afterwards of pe- people just saying, that was very honest. So, I'm so, so the, the last thing I want to do is to go out there and try and be a stand-up and try and compare myself to Dylan Morn or to Tommy or to Deirdre. I, because of my years in production and direction and in the visual world, I'm trying to develop a little bit of a unique show, which is like a documentary live. So I'm documenting my life with a bit of stories, and I talk about U2, and I t- talk about t- t- TV, and I talk about experiences, but I am peppering it with humour and jokes and one-liners and laughing back at myself a lot. And that's what it is. So it's going to be different... People who, who like, who hear this and see a poster or see a, a note that I'm playing in the Town Hall Theatre upstairs on Friday, February the 17th, and I'm doing a show in the record room in Limerick on Saturday, February the 18th, they're going to go, who is this guy? And I'm glad, because when they come, they're going to be very, very surprised, I hope, of what they're going to get. It's not going to be the usual shtick. Where are you from? You know what I mean? Spending the first 15 minutes wasting everybody's time wondering where everybody's from. I don't care where you're from. I just care that you want to come and sit back and just let yourself go into a show of a mind of a fairly mentaler, right? But but I know when I let go, they walk away after 60 or 70 minutes and they go, what was that? But it'll stick with them. And they're going to enjoy it. And the challenge is that I've just said it. It's going to be five five star. Regrets only. Five star reviews all the way, even before I've seen it. We'll give it a five star preview. Okay. That's it. Uh, well, I'm looking forward very much to seeing it, uh, Billy, and seeing you on the stage as opposed to you watching me on the stage. Um, can I ask you how you book, how you get tickets? Uh, the website for the Town Hall Theatre is it, there, so it's very easy. I'm not sure record room. I think it might be cash in the door. I don't think there's a ticket facility. It's a lo- lovely room. And, oh, my, my best man at my wedding, a guy I've known for years who helped me promote gigs in Galway in 1977. 
seven. Tom Prendergast uh, is a legend in his own right. He's going to DJ after me. So I'm on in Limerick in the record room at ha- half eight to a quarter to ten, and Tom will DJ afterwards from half ten to, to one. That that sounds great. It sounds very much like those uh, those little bits written on posters years ago for, you know, uh, gig plus support plus disco. Be there or be square. It's been fantastic talking to you. You've got an incredible story. Uh, and, uh, I mean, there's so much, there's so much more that we could talk about. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, enough time. Maybe we get part two after after we see your show after Gusto, yeah. uh, well after act three maybe there'll be an act four <laughs> and five uh so well good the very best of luck with it uh billy it's been thanks lovely, lovely talking to you and um the show details will also be on uh, the senior times website and i believe that there will be some tickets to be won two tickets to be won for billy's show uh, and look for details on that on the senior times website Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. Best of luck. And will phone poke a new wet, and will knappy no fum nis orjo wet. Nis eskalihusaj, faker no phone in takata gwin, on cho, egg daro, and von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glinna, agus taskina, tarod egen gogachtina, tanismo olis egg daro.com.